Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle say 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. The guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Good morning, everybody, and good noon to the rest of you. My name is Jefferson Smith, sitting in for Tom Hartman. It's an honor to be with you. In Chinese culture, the number eight has long been regarded the luckiest number. In the Bible, the number eight signifies resurrection and regeneration. It is the number of a new beginning. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate new beginning. It is said in the Bible that Jesus rose on the first day of the next week from the day he was crucified. Aces and eights is the dead man's hand. Wild Bill Hickok held the dead man's hand, aces and eights, when Jack McCall shot him in the number 10 saloon in Deadwood, Dakota, in 1876. Does Robert Mueller have any aces? Yesterday, there were eights. The president's personal lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, pled guilty on eight criminal counts, including tax fraud, false statements to a bank, campaign finance violations tied to his work for Trump, including payments made or helped orchestrate that were designed to silence women who claimed affairs with the then-candidate. And in so doing, Michael Cohen said he was directed to do that 
by that candidate. Two minutes later, Paul Manafort was convicted on eight criminal counts. The president's former campaign manager, including filing false tax returns, failing to report foreign bank accounts, and two instances of bank fraud. The crazy eights. A fitting description to the boggling times we see ourselves in. Not to mention the morning deluge of Twitter distraction offered by the current occupant of the White House. President Trump, welcome to the octagon. The big question today is what are the remaining big questions? In an era where a Kardashian earns a million dollars for an Instagram post because of her ability to garner attention, where should our attention go? The call-in number here is 202-808-9925. This is the Tom Hartman Show. The telephone number is 202-808-9925. Some of the big questions. The National Security Advisor, now guilty. The personal attorney, now guilty. The deputy campaign chair, now guilty. The campaign chair, now guilty. The foreign policy advisor, formerly already guilty. If eight is in fact not a random choice of digits, but a magic number, who are the next three, if that's five? Who do you think will be the next subject of attention of the current investigation? What will be the next shoe to drop? Who will be the ace as we deal with the crazy eights? Comments have come in, including the now timeless MAGA stands for my attorney got arrested. I want to say that there were four giant stories yesterday. Four giant stories. Two of them I offered. One of them, again, Paul Manafort convicted on eight counts, mistrial on ten counts. Innocent, zero counts. Michael Cohen pleaded guilty without taking a deal, without any promise of leniency, without any promise of cooperation, and nonetheless implicated the president. Joshua, go ahead. What's the what's the big what are the big questions or what do you have on your mind? Well, I was just looking at Michael Cohen's plea deal and I'm asking myself, how is this good for America? It's not good for the country. Anybody who roots for this, in fact anybody who ultimately and I recognize the emotional reaction that this had on me and that has on people around the country who are deeply concerned about the policy choices, about the decisions, about the actions of this president, and have built up meaningful and, I would argue, justified emotion around this president. But if any of us roots for the toppling of a president, we have our priorities misaligned. Now, the removal of this president maybe should be a priority. But it isn't the objective. The objective, the ultimate goal, is a better country. This is horrible for the country. This is horrible for the institution of the presidency. This is horrible for the reputation of the United States of America. This is horrible from our, for our belief that a two-party system can give us what is needed. If all you have to do is build 92% support within your own party, and thanks to anti-majoritarian practices in campaign finance, in districting, in vote counting, in vote collection. Nonetheless, if you have only 40% of support in what's supposed to be a democratic nation and you're able to still wield control within that country, that's terrible for the country. Anybody who experienced glee last night, I hope it was short-lived. I have a map from... Common Dreams, who has already organized at least 350,000 pledges of Americans in more than 900 cities ready to take to the streets if there is, in fact, obstruction of justice that is clear and if, in fact, the president reacts to this as some people fear he might. What would be the reaction of this president when people take to the streets? Doesn't pe People shouldn't. But it does mean there shouldn't be glee. Randy from Iowa 
Randy, go ahead. Hi. Uh, I'll finish up. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, who thinks that the truth is a concept or some virtual thing out there that, that is not tangible and, and, and real, and uh, go back to something that came from his law office back during the campaign or prior to all of this obstruction of justice and everything else, that during the campaign, the Giuliani uh, law office wrote Cambridge Analytica a letter advising them that it would not be legal for them to participate or to offer help to the Trump campaign, and yet they did it anyway. And I don't hear anything about this, Jefferson. So I think the apples are rotten all the way to the bottom of the barrel and how his law team have behaved and, and what they're going through. They're, they're leaving him for a reason that they're not going to get caught in his web of lies. I appreciate it, Randy. And I appreciate both of the callers whose initial instincts. And it reminds me that this is not merely a show. At its best moments, it's a mini-movement. It, if it is merely a show, then all this is is bread and circus, that we have to be doing more and experiencing more than mere dazzlement from the national tragedies that befall us but in fact engage in them, hopefully constructively and with thoughtfulness. And I appreciate both the callers who are pulling out our eyes that what's really going on, it's not just there's a reality host who is corrupt in the White House. There's something else that enabled that, that continues to fuel it, that in fact called for such a thing. And the idea, the question that was posed is truth, truth. I do think that gets to the root of it. Yeah, it, it, one could dismiss it as a slip of the tongue, and I don't, and I don't want to use one line to define all things. But there is a debate that is going on, and I again say that it's not merely a debate. It is not what Republican versus Democrat meant 75 years ago. That right now there is a team that has occupied one of the two major parties in this country that has a different view of power and democracy and thinks the democracy should be at the tool of power rather than power should be the tool of democracy. And that as we learned in, during the Nixon administration, in fact, when we learned about the rat efforts, about the people who were trained to mess with elections, they thought that it was kind of a fluffy hearted liberal idea. And I don't mean left leaning. I mean the anti-Nazi, anti-communist liberal tradition. It was a liberal idea that truth was what was supposed to be in charge, that rational analysis and people coming to agreement was supposed to be the thing that made the ultimate decision. When, in fact, somebody who opposes those fluffy hearts recognizes it is will, it is power that makes the decision. And that, to me, is what is at stake. When Rudy Giuliani says truth is not truth, it might be a slip of the tongue. It is also a reminder that there are key forces running the country who are not after the small L liberal tradition of figuring out a rational and reasonable response to what ails us, but merely and primarily in the wielding, preservation, and application of power. Brian also from Schaumburg, Illinois, wants to raise our eyes merely from the occupant of the White House. Brian, go ahead. Hi, good morning, Jefferson. Good morning to you. You know, a big part of this Trump debacle and the Iraq war debacle is corporate television media. I mean, the Iraq war, for instance, the whole run up to the Iraq war, corporate media was cheerleaders because they knew that a hot shooting war would bring them massive ratings. So they wouldn't ask the hard questions to maybe undermine public opinion on the war. Now, the 2016 election, same thing. Donald Trump got a lot of attention because of his juvenile bullying behavior and shocking, you know, things that he would say. So corporate TV media, like Les Moonves, for example, knew that just give Donald Trump the TV and you'll make tons and tons of money. Yeah. And that's what they did. It, yeah. That Trump, Les Moonves' line, hopefully now famous line, was Trump might be bad for the country, but he's good for our network. The and I again appreciate you raising our eyes, uh, Brian. The uh, I have also said if you think about the biggest mistakes. In fact, maybe this merely summarizes what you said. But if you think of the biggest mistakes that this country has made 
in this century. I think those mistakes include the invasion of Iraq, include the election of Donald Trump, and maybe include the financial crisis in 2007. The first two of those things did not happen incidentally involved with the media, the major media, but major media helped promote both of those things. And major media missed the underpinnings, including deregulation of banks that helped lead to the third. So I appreciate, and you're right, it's one of the reasons that I'm so glad to be here with you and why I'm so appreciative of all of the callers and participants. Peter Jennings once said, I show my bias by the stories that I choose. What did Omarosa say? She said, the way to combat Trump is don't give him the attention. He thrives upon it. Why does a Kardashian earn a million dollars for an Instagram post? Because she can garner attention. The bully pulpit of the presidency used to be an automatic ticket to attention because of a limited range of media options. You got to be in the newspaper and you got to be on the very few among the not infinite radio stations and then on the very few TV stations. Now the bully pulpit is the ability to garner attention. So the leading cable news broadcaster had a decision to make after two monumental pieces of news happened yesterday. One, the campaign manager of the president being convicted on eight counts. And two, the president's personal lawyer saying the president told me to break the law. And that cable news outlet had a choice. Those are enormous stories. So which story are they going to put on the front page? You can put multiple things on the front page, but you only lead with one. You only have one thing dominate the screen in the Internet age. And what dominated the screen? Which of those? They chose neither. They chose the single and tragic death of a woman, allegedly at the hand of somebody who shouldn't have been in the country. It wasn't an exercise in fake news. It was an exercise in entirely different news, if we can call it that. They show their bias by the stories that they choose, not only whether they contest proven facts, but whether they let people know the facts at all. I want to take a call from Omar, who's been waiting patiently. Omar, loyal listener to the show. How you doing, sir? Yes, sir. I'm doing great, Jefferson the Great. That's your new name, Jefferson the Great. Um, I wanted to just to talk. The big question is, is what are we going to do to bring our country to normalcy? What are we going to do to bring our presidency to normalcy? What are we going to do to bring our Congress to normalcy? Go out and vote. Go out and vote. That's the most important thing. I think we're at a point where people are really upset and fed up. But 2018 is just around the corner, and 2020 is coming up. If we can get through 2018, get the crowd in, we will vote this person out, and we will take our country back peacefully with not a bullet uh, shot. Thank you so much for taking my call. Appreciate it, Omar. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. 
And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at ChooseMuse, M-U-S-E, ChooseMuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. Let's go to Don in Seattle, Washington. Don, go ahead. Oh, hi, Jefferson. Yeah, I think that a lot more light on the Mueller investigation can be shed if three of his sons, uh, Eric, Don Jr., and Jared Kushner, could be forced to, through a subpoena to appear perhaps in a closed-door session with the promise of being granted immunity from prosecution for themselves. But I doubt that it would happen because they're so loyal to their father. I mean, no wonder Donald's name is Don, as in Mafia Don. He runs his own family, his administration, like a Mafia crime family, it seems to me. so. No, I appreciate it. And, and this is, I mean, to me, I, I was curious to see how the state-run media, how Fox News, Republican-run media, would respond. And I forgot they don't usually respond. They usually deflect and distract. Uh, I all, but then there are still commentators. There are ser- still people in the right-wing communications apparatus who get asked questions and have to say stuff. And so you had Rick Santorum saying that the real news was a single person's tragic death. And you had Fox News putting that on the cover of their screen. But I heard another argument. And that other argument was, well, Democrats ought to be careful because they've been saying Russia, Russia, Russia. And it turns out. It's not Russia, Russia, Russia. It's something else entirely. And then he tried to analogize to Clinton where they say it was Whitewater, Whitewater, Whitewater. And then it says, no, no, it was an affair in the White House, affair in the White House, affair in the White House. And because there was a bait and switch, this is his argument, Americans weren't ready to impeach. That was the narrative. That was the case. I'm always interested in the trial balloons, the early arguments that are offered. And then I'll be watching over the next days and I'll be with you uh, tomorrow and Friday. Uh, I'll be interested to see which arguments stick. Will it only be distraction arguments or will it be minimization arguments? It'll be, oh, well, this isn't collusion. This is just bank fraud and tax evasion and leverage on the campaign manager, president of the United States. This is only being told to cover up a crime, commit a crime uh, of cover up, a direction by the president to the president's lawyer. This doesn't have anything with Vladimir Putin. As you mentioned, and as several listeners have mentioned, the story to me isn't Russia. It's really important. I mean, it's really important. But that fits into something that's more important, which is corruption. Which is, and that corruption isn't only about the last several months or the last couple of years. It is also in response to Omar's question. What are we going to do to restore normalcy? I don't know what normalcy is exactly. Omar's answer was vote. Heck yes. But understand that this has been at least 40-year movement. That whether you put the dawn of this with the nomination of Bear Goldwater and his loss or with the election of Ronald Reagan or with the beginnings of the Virginia school and the empowerment by the Koch brothers, this didn't get hatched up 18 months ago, 28 months ago. This got hatched a long time ago. And the devil's bargain that was cast to elect a reality show star to the presidency was knowing that they could continue that project. It's number one objective being taking over the courts, which is nothing we'll talk about. And it doesn't happen without the media as another listener offered. I want to say, let's go to Al, Al listening and watching on Facebook from, uh, from Buffalo, New York. Go ahead, Al. Okay. 
We cannot casually dismiss the fact that the Republicans blew the banks in 2008, right? They, they're the ones that forced Lehman Brothers into, into bankrupt, bankruptcy, thus causing a completely frozen market. So when Obama uh, was inaugurated, he inherited a, a hellstorm of problems because uh, you had you had the uh, two unfunded wars, you know, after the Republicans blew the banks, and you had the you know the failure to protect us from the worst attack on American soil. So you you have to look at what what the 111th Congress Congress did, passing the first time homebuyers credit, the Cash for Clunkers, the Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the Affordable Care Act. I mean, I can go on and on. And they were considered the most productive Congress since the New New Deal. And then everybody fell asleep in 2010. And just before the 2010 mid- midterms, you had guys like Mike Papantonio. And, you know, I don't want to go into a list, but you had the, what I call the dismal allies out there saying that, uh, why bother voting? Because the, 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 the Democrats are capitulating. They're weak. Now, to me, that's a recipe for disaster. Now, we got exactly what we deserve. We got a Donald Trump, number one, because we were complicit, we were complacent, and we fell asleep. Now is the time for us to wake up, lick our wounds, and say, we screwed ourselves. This is called a self-run riot. Democrats always do it. It's called a self-run riot. Appreciate it, Al. We have, we, we've got Go to ahead. stop this. Yeah, and I hear you. And, the, and while I do think, I mean, my, what I try to keep in mind is a version of the 80-20 principle is focusing 80% of my energy on the things I care about 80% or that I, the folks I agree with 80% of the time, not fighting with the people I disagree with 20% of the time. And whether that's attacking them on strategy or attacking them on values, we can disagree. And I don't have to be silent about those disagreements. I don't have to be silent about uh, strategic disagreements or about policy disagreements. But there are games of principle and there are games of politics and power. In my mind, games of politics and power need to be the servant of games of principle. Games of principle should happen every day in our lives and in how we communicate and even wield power. In games of politics and power, with principle in mind, we also have to figure out how those games are won, how those decisions are made, and make sure that we don't fall into a trap of being toothless, of being without tools in the pursuit of those games. I want to go to Charlene from Illinois. I'm calling because I think we need to stop focusing on what Mueller's doing to bring Trump down and think about what we, the Democrats, can do to bring him down. I know we can't impeach him, but I think we should talk about the fact that he's never had a solo press conference except one since he was elected. That is outrageous. He should be accountable to the American people. W had 11 solo press conferences his first year, and Obama had 12. This guy has never accounted to anybody for anything. And I think when you get 45 minutes with the reporters, it's going to show what a liar he is, how little he knows about anything. I think one solo press conference could bring him down. Charlene, thank you so much for the call. And your point... People don't need to call for impeachment. They do need to call for accountability. And accountability can happen in multiple forms, including what you just said. This is the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith. And on the phone, Ellen Ratner, Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. It's an honor to have you, Ellen. How you doing? Slow news day, well, yeah? Thank you so much, Jefferson. Well, boy, it's always a slow news day with uh, President Trump. So, uh, first of all, Bob Ney, who was a Republican member of Congress before he went to prison and works for us, as you know, yeah. uh, he made projections into the House November uh, elections. He actually has the House staying Republican uh, because of the likely Dems and the leaning Democrats and the likely Republicans and the leaning Republicans. It's not good. And he even gave uh, a congressman from California that got indicted yesterday and also Congressman Collins uh, from New York, who actually dropped out of the race because of insider trading. I mean, he even gave them in the likely Dem department. So it's not looking as good as we thought it might look, but that's why we need everybody to vote. Okay. The president is working to keep the House Republican. They had a conference call yesterday at the White House, and they said that he is going to be having fundraisers and rallies across the country. Uh, He's going to do 16 fundraisers 
at least eight rallies, and he's going to be going to North Dakota, South Dakota, Missouri, Montana, Nevada, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And, of course, he's trying to uh, get rid of uh, people like Joe Manchin in West Virginia. And he actually had a rally yesterday in West Virginia in where they talked about, uh, well, he talked about Hillary Clinton's favorite topic, and, of course, they said, lock her up, lock her up. And are Republicans not concerned about tying their own House elections to this president? Well, I guess they're not. Uh, who knows? I mean, what they're concerned about, it depends who you talk to, obviously. Um, and then the president yesterday tweeted, actually this morning he tweeted, if anyone's looking for a good lawyer, I would strongly suggest you don't retain the services of Michael Cohn. Then he said, Michael Cohn pled guilty to two counts of campaign finance violations that are not a crime. President Obama had a big campaign finance violation, and it was easily settled. And a huge and large number of counts, 10, could not even be decided in the Paul Manafort case. Witch hunt, he said. Then he wrote another tweet. I feel badly for Paul Manafort and his wonderful family. He won't answer the question as to whether he's planning on giving a pardon to Paul Manafort. Michael Cohn said he won't accept a pardon if he's given one, but of course he'd never get a pardon from the president. I wanted to ask you if you're seeing or hearing any impact within Republican power circles of the Manafort conviction and the Cohen plea, not deal, but plea. Well, I think that they're very worried about the Cohen plea. I don't think anybody's terribly surprised with the Manafort conviction. I actually have a, a Democrat on my staff, and I'm a Democrat. We were arguing about whether Manafort was going to get convicted. I said nothing. He said all counts. So we split the difference and, and we both won. And why didn't you think he was, what was your side of the argument that you thought he was well, going to get off? we had somebody at the, one of our staff people was at the court every day and said some of the jurors looked very bored and they didn't look like they were going to convict. Yeah. Um, but clearly they convicted on some things and not others. So that's kind of interesting. I, I was, I will admit, a little bit paranoid, right? Every time they sent a note to the judge, every time the judge said something that seemed prejudicial, I was like, uh-oh, is the fix in? I will acknowledge. I was I was concerned. I don't know. I, I probably, if I were forced well, to choose. for 80 years. I mean, he could spend the rest of his life in jail, for right. sure, depending on what the judge decides to uh, give him. Uh, why did Cohen plead guilty without a deal? And why did Manafort go to trial without a uh, rather than make a deal? You already offered the probably dominant uh, current conception is so that because he thought he thinks he can play for a pardon. I think he thinks he can get a pardon. I think yeah. he does think that the president is going to give him a pardon. And that's why he decided not to cooperate in any way, shape or form. And I think Cohen believes because he has tapes. And believe you me, I do not approve of surreptitiously tapes anybody. I really don't. That's my problem with Amoroso. It's my problem with Cohn. I don't believe you should ever tape somebody and not tell them. But yeah. that's just my personal view. Are you covering at all, and sorry if this, if this puts you in the spot when you're when you headed to Cleveland, but on this Duncan Hunter indictment? Yes, well, we are covering. I mean, we were obviously not in California. Uh, Duncan Hunter uh, is the congressman from the 50th 5-0 district of California. It's near San Diego. Uh, he, they said that he and his wife, Margaret, uh, took over $250,000 in campaign funds for personal expenses, including dental work, trips to Italy, Hawaii, etc. And he was warned, apparently, by his treasurer several times. What was going to happen? So the treasurer of his campaign fund warned him, and he still didn't pay any attention. I think this guy was the second member of Congress to endorse Trump. He was very early on as an endorser of Trump. That's right. And does that seem, I know that you provide news, which we appreciate, and I don't just want to muddle that up, but it seems to me that this stuff is not a coincidence, right? That that it that the people who had, that there was leverage upon became the most likely people, or at least the earliest people to support the guy. Is that just a coincidence? Am I too much of a conspiracy well, theorist? you know, the fact is, is that it's the Ninth Circuit. The, the guy that got convicted in New York was also a very early Trump supporter. And the fact is the Justice Department is run as part of the executive branch. Well, Ellen Ratner, it's delightful to have you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Two big stories. Enormous stories. Historic. The president's campaign manager, 
was convicted on eight counts. And another crazy eight. Michael Cohen, the president's personal lawyer, pled guilty on eight counts. Third story, mind huge, was Fox News deciding that neither of those deserved to be their top story. But stories have limits. The word news has limits. It's supposed to be the thing that is new. Stormy Daniels' lawyer, Michael Avenatti, figures that out by giving a little information at a time. Omarosa wrestles with that fact, playing Trump's game by releasing one little video or one little audio recording at a time because they understand the news business. But we here on this program are not merely a business. I work for a nonprofit radio station. It is mission and purpose driven, and its purpose is not profit. So news, in the definition limited to the fact that it is new and tasty and click-worthy, is not always to the pursuit of that purpose. So what's the big fight? What's the big question? One of our listeners earlier had asked, what is it going to take to return to normalcy? Originally asked, what's it going to take to impeach the president? Well, that would take winning the Senate and facts that justify it that are proven. But what does it take to have more of a democracy? I think it's going to take a multi-decade effort. Recruiting resources, operating within and beyond the existing system. And by beyond, I don't mean breaking the law. I mean also looking at how one needs to change the rules so the rules move in the direction of public interest. I think it means a percentage of all our incomes to progressive causes. Yes, that could include your non-commercial media outlet in your own town. And thank you to all of the affiliates who run this show. But the big story, the big fight, the big discussion I want to have right now is what I think this thing has been about to a large degree and answers the question of why so many people in Republican power have stuck with this president. Why they stick with a guy who seems like he might bring down the party. And it's because of Judge Kavanaugh. Because this is the game. This is what the Virginia school was working for. This is what the Koch brothers have been working for. This is why right-wing Christian forces signed the devil's bargain with perhaps the least Christian man ever to be in the White House. They learned the lesson of the Lochner-era court that preserved economic power against the early years of the FDR administration, the post-Depression era. They learned the lesson of the Warren court that pushed against racism in Brown versus Board of Education and against misogyny in Roe versus Wade. The fight is about the courts. Bringing on the phone, Ian Milhauser, who knows something about courts. He wrote Injustices, the Supreme Court's nearly unbroken history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. He joins us now to help us understand, yes, the news of the day through a lens of what the heck is happening in the courts and why it should be moved up the priority list, up the attention list, not only of the right wing Christian movement, but also of people who care about democracy and justice. Ian, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. Thanks so much. What do we need to be paying attention to that we are missing? Well, there's a lot of things you have to be paying attention to. What you've seen over the last several years as Congress has become more dysfunctional is that the Republican agenda has moved from the elected branches to the judiciary. You know, they weren't able to get their Obamacare repeal through. They weren't able to get through something sweeping like the Ryan budget with its cuts to Medicare and Medicaid. What they are able to do is undermine workers' ability to sue their employers in the Supreme Court. They're able to undermine voting rights in the Supreme Court. They're soon going to be able to overrule Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. They're going to be able to say that if you are a conservative Christian, you don't have to follow civil rights laws in the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court is the branch that is working right now. It's the branch that is actually able to make policy, while the other two branches are completely dysfunctional. And they know that. They know once they get a death grip on the Supreme Court, they're potentially going to prevent, be able to prevent Democrats from ever getting in the majority again, because when you control the Supreme Court, you control what our election laws say. And if you control what our election laws say, then you can make sure that Democrats don't get to vote. Spill that a little more. Tease it out. The decisions that they have made or that they still could make that could preserve power for an anti-majoritarian party. Sure. Let's talk about the Voting Rights Act. 
I mean, the Voting Rights Act is the single most important piece of Democratic legislation ever enacted in the United States. The Voting Rights Act is what broke the back of Jim Crow voter suppression. It's the reason why black voters in the South are able to vote. And John Roberts, Chief Justice of the United States, already wrote an opinion cutting out a big part of the Voting Rights Act, cutting out what's called Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. He is likely, there are four votes on the Supreme Court right now, who most likely will kill the rest of the Voting Rights Act. They'll say that what's called disparate impact suits aren't allowed under the Voting Rights Act, which means that you can't sue just because a law has a disparate effect on minority voters. They'll make it so that it's imp- almost impossible to prove that lawmakers acted with racist intent. And then once you get rid of the Voting Rights Act, let me tell you what the world looks like. There's a Georgia county right now. This is going on at this minute. It is a majority black county. And so the election board... Randolph County. What's that? Randolph Randolph County. County. Wants to close down seven of the nine polling places in Randolph County. Because when you close down the polling places, black people aren't going to be able to get to get to the polling place to vote. In Alabama, back in 20 in in 2015, there was an incident where not only did Alabama enact a voting voter ID law. So you need to be able to, to show a photo ID in order to vote. But they tried to close down the DMVs in black areas so that black people couldn't get the ID that they need to vote. Now, once the Supreme Court takes out the Voting Rights Act, and Judge Kavanaugh is likely to be the fifth vote to do that, that means that what Alabama wants to do and what Georgia is threatening to do, all of that is going to become legal. It's going to mean that in every single red state, they can just shut down the polling places in black counties. They can make it impossible for black people and for Latino people and for other demographics they know are likely to vote for Democrats to show up and cast a ballot. And once that happens, the Republican Party has won permanently. You know, there, there isn't a way to elect a Democratic majority in this country if people of color can't vote. And so that's their end game. That's why they care so much about the Supreme Court. Here is one of my concerns. So mm-hmm. already, a, a lot of the attention is about Roe versus Wade, and there's a lot of reason for that, both because it's intrinsically important and because it might be how Susan Collins has a moment of conscience. Right. Uh, you have mentioned the thing that worries me as well, and I think has even longer lasting strategic impact on the power building for the current movement. It, it, you can't have a, 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 a fundamental idea that only the wealthy should control the country and have that win unless you can uh, topple or at least undermine the systems of democracy that could right. hold that in check. But here's the other thing that I want to ask you about. So I've been thinking a lot, and I haven't thought about it enough, and I haven't talked about it enough, and I haven't talked to you about it. The Lochner era, right, where mm-hmm. where the at the turn of the last century and in the that when there was a recognition. Well, it's rather than me explaining it. Why don't you explain the last time a right wing court uh, really blocked efforts to have a slightly more democratic economy. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is, I mean, this is something I discussed at length in my book. So the, the Lochner era began in like 1895, continued till the 1930s. And this was an era where the Supreme Court basically just made up reasons to strike down progressive legislation. They struck down the minimum wage. They struck down um, laws protecting the right to unionize. They're, the reason it's called the Lochner era is because there's a case called Lochner v. New York. And what Lochner v. New York dealt with is that bakers, bakery workers in New York, ha- were working in atrocious conditions. They were sometimes working 80, 90, 100-hour weeks. They had to sleep on the uh, table where they needed the bread. The bakeries themselves were just dirty, and they were hot, and it was a terrible working environment. And New York, and on top of that, they were only paid weekly. So whether you worked, you know, 40 hours in that week or you worked 100 hours in that week, you got the same amount of money. And so New York passed a law saying 60 hours is the limit. You could only make bakery workers work up to 60 hours under this system. And the Supreme Court struck that down, and they struck it down under a completely made-up theory. 
that where the Constitution says that no one shall be denied liberty without due process of law, what liberty without due process of law actually means is that if you agree to go work to someone on exploitative terms, because that's the only job that's available to you, you're stuck with that and the government can't do anything to help you. So Lawrence Tribe was my constitutional law professor, and mm-hmm. it was treated like, oh, that was yesterday, because it was under this idea of substantive due process, and that right. was discredited. And the Scalia movement used the, and if you have a, a term that you want to use to describe the current judicial era, or I fear the coming judicial era, I will defer to that. I want to come back right after this very quick moment and talk about what might be coming what the next era of the court could look like, not only in terms of Roe versus Wade, not only in terms of misogyny, not only in terms of, yes, democracy and changing the rules, but also on what a new Lochner era might look like. This is the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jeff Smith. That's Ian Milheiser. You're you. We are talking about the court and my claim, and I'll just use this number, 16, 16 years. That is the average tenure of a Supreme Court justice, 16 years. Presidents get it max eight. Members of Congress, I didn't look up their average tenure. A young justice gets more than 16. This is the game. And as Ian already pointed out, this is the branch of government that works even beyond the gridlock that is happening in Congress. Ian and I, during the break, we're talking about the Lochner era, the era of about the late 1890s to the early 1930s, where the Supreme Court, to use his terms, would make up justifications to take down, uh, to strike down progressive legislation. Ian, the question I've got now, including thinking about Roe versus Wade, including thinking mm-hmm. about uh, voting rights, and I would put voting rights as tied for the most important things I care about in the whole universe. I also wonder what... Uh, what it would look like to have and and what the rhetorical architecture might be to justify a Lochner-like era. Like, imagine there is a resurgence of voting power in the country that is recognizing the need for more progressive taxation, for laws regulating rent, for protecting the environment against climate change, and really putting some limitations on unfettered capital. What would be the, and and to cue this up a little more and forgive the long way going around the barn, for the last 20 years, give or take, the right-wing justice has been saying, well, no, we're just original strict constructionists. We're not going to make up our own law. We just want to protect legislative law. Right. How do you see that rhetorical architecture shifting or crumbling or transforming if Kavanaugh is confirmed? And what might a new Lochner era look like? Yeah. So, I mean, what this court has done is they've been really obsessed with using the First Amendment to achieve conservative goals. So, Kavanaugh, for example, as a lower court judge, wrote an opinion where he said that net neutrality violates the First Amendment. The idea is that you're requiring Internet service providers to carry certain content at speeds they may not want to carry it at, and that's somehow a free speech violation. Um, There was a case recently called Janus, which is going to do significant damage to public sector unions. And the theory behind Janus is that the bargaining that goes on between unions and employers is a form of First Amendment protected speech. Because, you know, you sit in a room, I mean, I'm in my union leadership and we have a contract that comes up, we get in a room and we negotiate, we talk. And so the idea was that that conversation is itself a form of protected speech and there are limits on the government's ability to regulate it. And if you go down that road, that has huge implications. I mean, a minimum wage law could be framed as a violation of free speech because my employer might want to offer me a job. They might want to use the words to me, we want to pay you $4 an hour. And right now it is illegal for my employer to tell me that they want to pay me $4 an hour because that is below the minimum wage. So the Supreme Court could frame that as a First Amendment violation. There are laws protecting my rights to have certain health benefits and certain retirement benefits. They could say, well, if your employer is not going to say to you, we're going to offer you an inferior health plan, that's a First Amendment violation. There was even a case recently, it was brought by Paul Clement, who was probably the most prominent Republican attorney in the country, which claimed that Seattle's minimum wage law violates the First Amendment because the money that companies like McDonald's will have to spend on increased labor costs because of the minimum wage can't be spent on advertising. 
and that hmm. that is suppressing their free speech. <laughs> that is literally an argument. I mean, it, it sounds frivolous, but this was brought by one of the best lawyers in the country and the most prominent Republican lawyer in the, in, in the country. So, I, I mean, it, it sounds ludicrous when you think that a minimum wage law could violate free speech. But that is the road that these folks are going down. No, this, this is actually very helpful. This is helpful to connect yeah. some of these dots because the voting rights stuff, in my own view, is not only a priority for them. Right. It is a tool, right? They change the rules, so they're empowered to change more rules. But that also has an outcome, and the Koch brothers fund that in significant part because of their view of society where wealth should govern. Here's the other question. I know you got to bounce. You've been tracking, I presume, the confirmation process or non-confirmation yep. process of Kavanaugh. Where do you put the percentage chance and or uh, what can people be doing? Just talk about that a little bit. Well, I'll, I'll say this. The, the chance that he will not get confirmed is greater than zero. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think the chance of beating him is much greater than zero, but it is not zero. Yeah. And, that, and that means you got to fight because if we stop this guy, and we keep them from filling that ninth seat on the Supreme Court, then all of these horror shows I'm describing don't happen. Right now, the leverage point is Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And the reason why is because both Collins and Murkowski claim to be pro-choice. And Kavanaugh's the fifth vote to get rid of Roe v. Wade. And, I mean, Collins has even gone so far as to say that she won't vote to confirm someone if she knows that they're going to vote to overrule Roe v. Wade. So this is a put-up-or-shut-up moment for her. And what I hope is on Susan Collins' mind is that Susan Collins is the senator from a blue state. She's the senator from Maine. And she's got to run for re-election in 2020. And she can either run for re-election in a blue state as the person who saved Roe v. Wade, single-handedly saved it by voting no, or she can run for re-election as the person who killed Roe v. Wade by voting yes. And I hope that is on her mind. And if any one of her constituents, if anyone from Maine is listening, I hope you are, you are constantly calling her and putting that on her mind, because that's what she's got to decide. It's, you know, I mean, I don't expect you to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, but maybe she'll do the right thing because she wants to keep her job. Because he realizes that you can't get elected in the blue state if you single-handedly killed Roe v. Wade. Ian Milheiser, thank you so much. Talking about the court. If you think the court's just one thing, they have an impact on the environment of that's your bag. If you care about the economy, they're going to be the final word on a bunch of that stuff. If you care about democracy, they're already being the final word on a bunch of that stuff. Civil rights, women's rights, you worried about prison reform, all of that stuff is going to go through the courts. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. Today we're reading from Martha Nussbaum's new book, The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. This is from the introduction. There's a lot of fear around in the U.S. today. 
And this fear is often mingled with anger, blame, and envy. Fear all too often blocks rational deliberation, poisons hope, and impedes constructive cooperation for a better future. What is today's fear about? Well, many Americans feel themselves powerless out of control of their own lives. They fear that the American dream, the hope that our children will flourish and do even better than you have done, has died and that everything has slipped away from them. These feelings have their basis in real problems. Among others, income stagnation in the lower middle class, alarming declines in the health and longevity of members of this group, especially men, and the escalating costs of higher education at the very time that a college degree is increasingly required for employment. But real problems are difficult to solve, and their solutions take long, hard study and cooperative work toward an uncertain future. It can consequently seem all too attractive to convert that sense of panic and impotence into blame and the othering of outsider groups such as immigrants, racial minorities, and women. They have taken our jobs, or wealthy elites have stolen our country. The problems that globalization and automation create for working class Americans are real, deep, and seemingly intractable. Rather than face those difficulties and uncertainties, people who sense their standard of living declining can instead grasp after villains, and a fantasy takes shape. If we can somehow keep them out, build a wall, or keep them in their place in subservient positions, we can regain our pride and, for men, their masculinity. Fear leads then to aggressive othering strategies rather than to useful analysis. At the same time, fear also runs rampant among people on the left who seek greater social and economic equality and the vigorous protection of hard-won rights for women and minorities. Many people who are dismayed by the election are reacting to it as if the end of the world is at hand. A majority of my students, many acquaintances, many colleagues feel and say often with anguish that our democracy is on the verge of collapse, that the new administration is unprecedented in its willingness to cater to racism, misogyny, and homophobia. They fear especially for the possible collapse of democratic freedoms, speech, travel, association, the press. My younger students especially think that the America they know and love is about to disappear. Rather than analyze matters soberly and listen to other people trying to sort things through, they often demonize an entire half of the American electorate, portraying them as monsters, <clears throat> excuse me, enemies of everything good. As in the book of Revelation, these are the last days when a righteous remnant must contend against satanic forces. We all need first to take a deep breath and recall our history. When I was a little girl, African Americans were being lynched in the South. Communists were losing their jobs. Women were just barely beginning to enter prestigious universities in the workforce, and sexual harassment was a ubiquitous offense that had no laws to deter it. Jews could not win partnerships in major law firms. Gays and lesbians, criminals under law, were almost always in the closet. People with disabilities had no rights in public space and public education. Transgender was a category that had as yet no name. America was far from beautiful. These facts tell us two things my students need to know. First, the America for which they are nostalgic never existed, not fully. It was a work in progress, a set of dynamic aspirations put in motion by tough work, cooperation, hope, and solidarity over a long period of time. A just and inclusive America never was, and is not yet a fully achieved reality. Second, this present moment may look like backsliding from our march toward human equality, but it's not the apocalypse, and it's actually a time when hope and work can accomplish a great deal of good. On both left and right, panic doesn't just exaggerate our dangers. It also makes our moment much more dangerous than it would otherwise be, more likely to lead to genuine disasters. It's like a bad marriage in which fear, suspicion, and blame display, displace careful thought about what the real problems are and how to resolve them. Instead, those emotions taking over become their own problem and prevent constructive work, hope, listening, and cooperation. When people are afraid of one another and of an unknown future, fear easily gives rise to scapegoating, to fantasies of payback, and to a poisonous envy of the fortunate, whether those victorious in the election or those dominant socially and economically. We all remember FDR's statement that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. We heard, recently heard departing President Obama say, Democracy can buggle when we give in to fear. Roosevelt was wrong if we take his words literally. Although we had reason to fear fear, we certainly had many other things to fear in his time, such as Nazism, uh, uh, hunger, and social conflict. Fear of those evils was rational, and, to that, and to, the, to that extent, we should not fear our fear, though we should always examine it. 
But Obama's more precise and modest statement is surely right. Giving way to fear, which means drifting with its currents, refusing skeptical examination, is surely dangerous. We need to think hard about fear and where fear is leading us. After taking a deep breath, we all need to understand ourselves as well as we can, using that moment of detachment to figure out where fear and related emotions come from and where they are leading us. And then she goes into a dialogue about that. The Monarchy of Fear by Martha Nussbaum. I said at the beginning of the show that there were at least four very large stories yesterday. One, the president's campaign manager being convicted. Two, the president's lawyer pleading without an agreement. Three, the major cable news outlet run by the Republican apparatus decided neither of those were their lead story. And four, this. 2,966 people died in the 9-11 hijackings, including 29 hijackers. I think it was 19 hijackers, actually. 2,403 people died in Pearl Harbor. Those two events define the American consciousness. Just in the last couple of days, something has happened that is understood to risk significantly more loss of life over time. And none of those will receive posthumous medals or a monument tower in Manhattan. And these are the new rules, the taking away of the environmental protection, clean power, regulatory rules of the Obama administration. And according to the administration's own analysis, could lead to 15,000 cases of upper respiratory problems, as many as 1,400 premature deaths every year by 2030. The administration's own analysis is that there could be an extre- a growth likely to be an increase in extremely fine particulate matter that is linked to heart and lung disease, leading up to 15,000 new cases of upper respiratory problems, maybe as many as 50,000 worsened cases of asthma, a rise in bronchitis, tens of thousands of missed school days, and as many as 1,400 premature deaths every year. Policy has impact. It's not only about whose team you're on. It's not only about who you voted for. It's not just what radio host you listen to. It's not just who you donate money to or volunteer for. It's not just issues. Oh, well, am I going to have a little bit more money or a little less money? Literally issues of life and literally issues of death. And somehow a single event that kills two or 3,000 people is, and I would say legitimately, etched into our national memory. And if we are going to build a media community, we have to make sure the decisions that are projected based on this administration's analysis. They looked at this analysis and they said, yeah, let's still do it. This was not the minority report. This was not testimony by somebody saying, you know, we probably shouldn't change those environmental rules. Could you see these numbers? 1,400 people a year are going to die prematurely. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's okay. We shouldn't do that. This was the administration's own analysis. We looked at this and said, oh, yeah, but those coal companies, they need it. These folks who are making money in natural resources, Koch brothers, that's where they make their money, for instance, they need relief. What about the 14,000 people every year? How do we make sure something like that gets etched into national memory? How do we understand that as a moral decision? Not just a moral decision among fluffy hearts or critics of the current administration, but of the essential purpose that government sits to make people's lives a little better and to protect those lives. Today, we talked about Manafort. We talked about Cohen. We also talked about 1,400 people per year. The administration's own information say we'll have premature deaths thanks to relaxed environmental protections per year. We also try to get into deeper themes, what's happening in the media. And we appreciate you joining us for all of it. You make this show possible.
when I tease around and yell maggots and teabaggers, when we fall into the same trap of thinking that what we are ultimately doing is an exercise of making our own circus, we can be part of the problem. The narrative is not only for purpose of the narrative. It is not only for clicks. It has to also be for humanity. And the narrative isn't just Russia, it's corruption to review for the day and not just the corruption of a single person or even his confederates, but of a movement that has taken over a once proud party. We got to see the long game. The news happens in moments. Movements happen over years. We need real relationships, deeper values, fundamental arguments. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason, and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is The Tom Hartman Show.